the offering off. Boys and Girls Missionary Challenge. Haven's on the way. My kids are gone today because they're sick. And I don't know where Mindy's at. So they're probably getting the same bug, fighting the same. No? Well, Joel sold them out. He said they're not sick. All right, well, Pastor Calvin's going to be taking the kiddos downstairs for Kids Church. So we're going to dismiss them. And for everybody else this morning, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. We're going to be back in the Gospel of Mark after taking an Easter break last week. The week before, we looked at Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. And this time when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, it's vastly different. It's a different uh, story entirely. And so we're going to begin reading. If you would, stand with me for the reading of the word this morning, beginning in verse 12. I might want to get to the right page. There we are. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever you, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now, most translations don't include verse 26, but we're going to read that as well. It says, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, who is in heaven, forgive you your trespasses. Father God, I just pray this morning that we receive your word, that we understand Jesus as he really is, as he truly is, and that we study this, that we look at this, that we soak it in and understand it for what you are really trying to get across to us, that we absorb it, Father God, and that it become a part of our life, our prayer life, Father God, that we have prayer that bears fruit based on your word. And so, Father God, I thank you for this message. I pray you, you use it to, to speak to our hearts this morning, mine included. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is one of those passages we've seen before all the way back in chapter 4 of Mark. We saw what we call a story sandwich where Mark starts to tell us one thing and then he kind of oddly shifts gears and tells us something else and then he wraps up what he had started to say earlier. We see that happening in this, but then we see Jesus begin to kind of build off what was just said and what just happened. And so it's kind of like there's the story sandwich, that's one sermon, and then there's what Jesus says about it, sermon number two. So you get two sermons for the price of one today, Please don't fall asleep. That was a joke. Some of you are already grabbing blankets. That's okay. But this is, this is a, a powerful story when we really break it down, when we really get our, 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 our hands into it, we see some beautiful truth being displayed for us. And the one thing you take away from this when you read this, and it's all meant to be read together. When you read this and you, and you begin to understand it, what you truly see is that if we want prayer that bears fruit, we have to submit to Jesus as he truly is. 
Not the Jesus we want him to be, not the Jesus we expect him to be, but the Jesus he is as his world reveals him, as his word reveals him to be. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, only a fool continues to stare at the finger that points him to the moon. And in many cases, when we look at this text and when we study this text, that's exactly what we end up doing. We become obsessed with, with what it says and how it says that we miss the true meaning behind it. We miss the message that Christ is trying to get across to us. And I believe if we read it and we study it, we see that Christ wants us to have a prayer life that bears fruit. And the only way to really do that is if in our prayer life we submit to Jesus for who he really is, for who he truly is. Now we look back at verse 12, and, and I'm going to kind of, there's a lot of verses. So for those of you who thought it was going to be a really long sermon, relax, okay? I'm going to go kind of quick this morning. But verse 12, it says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, before we get going too far, understand this passage that, that we're looking at takes place on the Tuesday of the Passion Week. We established a couple weeks ago, Palm Sunday was actually Palm Monday, and this is the very next day. This is Tuesday, and to, to wrap it up, it's going to happen on Wednesday morning, what normally gets called Silent Wednesday. We're going to see the events that take place between chapters 12 and 13 and, and a little further. That's going to happen on, on Wednesday. Matthew 21, 18 tells us that this event happens early in the morning. And most scholars believe this is at first light. This is around 6 a.m. Now, how many of you, if you got up at 6 a.m. or before 6 a.m., maybe you had to be on the road by 6 a.m., you're going to make sure you have a big breakfast? Okay, a few of you. I'm not that type of person. And I don't think Jesus was that type of person either. That's not me projecting. That's because he gets hungry too. I'm the guy that says, well, we'll just hit a drive through on the way. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's on the road and he gets hungry. It's 6 a.m. after all. Those of you who get up even earlier to, kick a, to, to cook a stack of pancakes, you're a different breed, okay? I'm not that kind of guy. I'm going to grab something on the way. And Jesus has that same mentality here. Now we have to remember he's been staying in Bethany and Bethphage. They are neighboring towns. For the record, Bethphage, I said this a couple weeks ago, it means house of unripe figs. Bethany means house of figs. So figs are kind of a big deal in this area, right? He's on the Mount of Olives. It's a very lush, very green area. It's a place that would offer some sustenance, and that's convenient because Jesus gets hungry. There are those who sometimes teach Jesus only ever came in spirit, that he didn't have a physical body. Well, we know from this text that can't be true because spirits don't get hungry. Physical bodies do. Now, Jesus is 100% God. He's also 100% man. And that physical body that God was indwelling gets hungry, gets tired. That's why he takes naps, right? Be like Jesus, take a nap this afternoon. Some of you guys say amen. Don't do it yet. Don't do it in this service, all right? Last joke about that. Mark is the most descriptive about this entire happening. This entire event, Mark is the one out of all four Gospels, Mark is the one who really zeroes in and gives us the most information. Now that's important because Mark is the shortest Gospel. Mark writes in a rush. If you remember, it's now, 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 and, and, and. He's continually flowing through his gospel, trying to get that message out there, trying to get it fast. But yet he takes time, more than Matthew, more than Luke, and definitely more than John, to tell us what happens with the fig tree and what goes on in the temple. So he does this. Why does he do this? Because it's for our benefit. It's not just for those early readers. It's for us too, that we need to understand, we need to see what is happening and comprehend it. And there's something that is going to impact our lives hidden, not necessarily hidden deeply, but, but within these words. So we read in verse 13, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, before we go any further, you have to understand, in the Old Testament, the prophets used a fig tree to represent the nation of Israel. 
When they would talk about Israel, they would often refer to that fig tree. We see this tap happen in Jeremiah 8.13, Micah 7.1, Hosea 9.10, Nahum 3.12, Zechariah 3.10. If you thought I was joking, that's only a few times that they actually do that. And Jesus comes up to this fig tree. So we understand, if we understand the context of the Old Testament, that if Jesus does something with this tree, it's going to be an object lesson about the nation of Israel. And it says it was in leaf. It was in leaf, but yet it didn't have any fruit. Is it contradicting himself? Is Mark contradicting himself there? Jesus probably knows more about local fig trees in, in near Jerusalem than any herbologist today would know. He ate from them regularly. He was around them all the time. So there's something to this. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 20, 19, that it was on the side of the road. It was accessible to the public. It was available to everybody as the temple was supposed to be. If you remember, the temple has a, a section called the Court of the Gentiles, where all nations could come to Israel, come to Jerusalem, especially, especially during the week of Passover, which is where we're at in Jesus's life. The Gentiles could come and worship in this temple. But the tree is a symbol of Israel as a whole. It's this object lesson. It's in leaf, but it's not the season for figs. It's in leaf. It looks like it should have fruit, but it doesn't. In fact, it wouldn't bear fruit for at least another month if, if, if it's the same type of fig tree we see today. Truthfully, it wouldn't even have ripe fruit, good fruit, until the fall. Now, there were some, some commentators like to point this out. Some pastors will preach this, that, that there were some species of fig trees that produce fruit year-round. That's true. There are also these little pods on the fig tree that are called uh, pagans, and they're little things you can eat. They don't necessarily taste that great, but they provide sustenance. But if we look at that, we become obsessed with the finger that's pointing us to the deeper truth. We become obsessed with what's pointing us to the moon, right? So we need to be careful with that. Jesus is, in this moment, he is ultimately reminding his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, he had mentioned back in chapter 8, verse 15, he told to the disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Why? Because they were hypocrites. They were people who would make up laws around the laws and then condemn people for not following the laws they themselves could not follow. That's the difference between a hypocrite and a human being. Many times people say, well, I don't want to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. No, it's full of human beings. See, we know, those of us who come, we know we're broken people. We know we've made mistakes. We know we sin. John, 1 John tells us that if we say we're without sin, we make God out to be a liar. And so when we go out in town and people see us and maybe we fall short, maybe we make a mistake, maybe we honk at somebody at a red light, guilty, right? Or we get a little upset with somebody at, at work or somebody at the, at the grocery store or, or maybe we say things or do things that are sinful. We understand, hey, you know what? I need to apologize. I need to make that right. And we feel convicted about those things. The hypocrite, on the other hand, will say, well, you know what? I know you struggle with such and such sin, and I struggle with it too, but I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to keep you down. I'm going to push you down. That's what hypocrites do. It's because of people like that, the Apostle Paul says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He says that in Romans 2.24. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 when he tells them, judge not lest ye be judged. People love to take that just that verse, and black out the rest of the Bible, as if that's what the whole Bible's about. It's not. In fact, if you read verses 2 and 3, Jesus is very clear. You don't judge and put people down and rebuke them for sins you yourself are struggling with. He talks about don't take the speck out of your brother's eye until you've removed the log from your own. So if I'm struggling with a sin, and I come to you, and I'm struggling with this exact sin, and I tell you, you better knock it off, I'm rebuking you, I'm a hypocrite in that moment. Jesus doesn't like hypocrites, but he loves people. And this tree is an example of hypocrisy. 
It had leaves. It says, look, it's advertising on the side of the road. Everyone who is hungry can come to me and eat. But it's not even the season. There's no fruit to be found. And this is, this is an example of exactly what Jesus has come to do in the nation of Israel. Jesus has come to seek out those who were true people of worship, true people of prayer, true people of righteousness. And yet what he has found in his time so far is even among the religious elite, they can't be found. They're, ver they're a very small group. And so we read in verse 14, he said to it, speaking to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Why would you announce that? The disciples heard it. Because they were meant to. This is a lesson for them waiting to unfold. There's a reason Jesus says things so the disciples can hear him. And it's not just so they can write about it later. It's so they can learn a lesson and teach about it later. They would have to explain this story before anyone else. Now Jesus, and some people suggest this, but this is not what's happening. He's not acting out the parable of Luke 13, where a man plants a fig tree and that fig tree never bears fruit. That's not what's happened here. This is a parable warning against being spiritually unfruitful in your own life. And Jesus is saying that those who are spiritually are, who are unfruitful they are just as cursed as this fig tree. Remember, the tree is going to represent Israel. And if it's a tree that looks as though it bears fruit, but it doesn't, ultimately what he is pointing to us and saying to us is that Israel's got a lot of spiritual hypocrisy going on. And so we go to verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Not the pigeons, Jesus. You're going to do that? What did the pigeons ever do to you, right? Well, we'll see. Jesus comes into Jerusalem this day, no fanfare, no parade, no palm trees, no donkey. This time he comes in and nobody's really that happy to see him. Not when he starts kicking over tables. He's making himself very unwelcomed in this moment. Now, three years earlier, John records he had done something very similar in the temple. In John 2, uh, 15, it says he actually even made his own whip to chase people out of the temple. That's hardcore. That's really believing in yourself right there. I'm not only going to drive them out, I'm going to make my own whip to, make, to, to drive them out. Jesus was cleansing the temple, but yet it got worse. It became worse. Here Jesus flips tables and he's yelling and he's likely shoving and even getting in people's way. He's, he's, he's stopping their production. He's disrupting everything that's going on. And by the way, we believe this is happening in the court of the Gentiles. Wow, that kind of makes a little sense whenever we understand the tree, right? Because the tree was available for everybody. It was there for all to come and pluck the fruit. The temple has a place specifically for the whole world to come and worship Yahweh God, the God of Israel, if they so choose. And yet, in the temple, in that area, it needed to be fixed. There were people doing things they weren't supposed to do. And the first time Jesus came and did this, his disciples saw it, and they were brought to mind, Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. But since that time, it's gotten worse. The greed has gotten deeper. Now, if you look in your Bible, chances are, and I've talked about this before, those little words in italics before every section of Scripture, that's called a paracopy. And if you look in your Bible, chances are the paracopy title, which is not inspired, by the way, that's, that's made up by your Bible publisher or your translators who put that in there. That's not, that was not in the original document, okay? Mark didn't say, oh, by the way, chapter 11, Jesus cleanses the temple. No, Mark never said that. He just records what happened. Jesus is not cleansing the temple. He's exposing the hearts of those who are in the temple. 
That's what he's really doing there. If he cleansed it, there'd be no need for its destruction. Now later in, in chapter 13, and I'll, and I'll get to this, later in chapter 13, Jesus will prophesy that the temple will be destroyed. And that's going to happen in the year 70 AD. It'll be brought down brick by brick. If he truly had cleansed it, there would be no need for that. No, the temple, we understand the temple is a symbol of God's presence in Israel. The temple is a symbol of Israel being set apart. It was meant to be a place of worship. It was meant to be a place of sacrifice. And above all, it was meant to be a place of holiness. And Jesus comes this day and it is none of those things. So Jesus overturns the tables, the seats of the money changers, and even upset those who were trying to sell some pigeons. Now it never fails. Every time we do a fundraiser, whether it's our Speed the Light dessert auction in the fall or, or a, a lunch after service where we ask for donations, almost 99.99999% of the time, someone's going to come to me jokingly, almost always jokingly, and say, I don't know about this, Pastor. I think we're turning the church into a den of robbers. I don't know why they sound like Yogi Bear in that, but that is not what's happening here. They're not doing fundraisers for missionaries. They're not doing fundraisers for, mission, or for ministries. They are lining their own pockets in greed. They are using the temple as a marketplace. They're buying, buy, buying and selling in the temple was expected. You were supposed to do that. If you couldn't afford a lamb, you could come to the temple and buy something cheaper and use that as a sacrifice. And God honored that. He knew your finances. We see that in, in Leviticus 5.7, Leviticus 12.6, number 6.10. These people weren't doing this to help people. They were doing this to help themselves. And like I said, the location was in the court of the Gentiles. So they were not only doing this to line their own pockets, they're taking advantage of the Gentiles who had come to worship, who had come to sacrifice. And we go to verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Je what's this mean? Jesus is getting in people's way. He's blocking people. He might be just coming along. You ever see somebody in high school, they're carrying like four textbooks on one side. They got their backpack and somebody comes along behind them and just smacks the textbooks out of their hands. What if Jesus is doing that? We don't know. We're not told that. But he's doing this to disrupt what they're doing. He's taking away the efficiency of their scam. He's taking away their shortcut. They, they were just going through the temple of the Gentile because it was a shortcut to the other parts of the temple where they could buy and sell. What they are doing, by the way, is irreverent. What they're doing is irreverent to the temple. It's irreverent to the Gentiles and to their worship. And most of all, it is irreverent to a holy God. They're using the temple for their own selfish gain. Now, many times we don't see it this way. We should, but we do the same thing. We do something similar. I want to go to church and, and feel good about me. I want to go to church and I want to worship, but worship songs that are about me. Not about God, but about myself. We call this meology or moral therapeutic deism is the bigger word for it where I want to go and I want the sermon to, to just inspire me to feel good about Jesus and feel good about my choices and tell me how awesome I am, not how great thou art. We do the same thing so easily. The temple was a place for worshiping God, but they had turned it into worship of self. And Jesus stops it. Jesus disrupts it, as he should. It's his right to do that. It's his temple, after all. But it, what I find so fascinating is that through all this chaos, people are clearly not going to like you smacking things out of their hands. If I'm at work and somebody tips over my desk, I'm not going to go, hey man, why'd you do that for? 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little irritated, right? It's natural. And people are likely getting very angry at Jesus. But what's he do? He stops to teach. In Mark chapter 1, he said this is the reason why he came. And so Jesus puts on a house cleaning of the heart. And he quotes Isaiah verse 50, uh, chapter 56 verse 7. But I'm going to actually back up. I want you to, to understand the full scope of what he's quoting here. Beginning of verse 6, it says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. God loves the Gentile. Even in the Old Testament, he is about missions. He's about bringing in people who want to worship him, who want to love and serve him. No matter if they're Israeli, if they're Jewish, if they're, if they're Samaritan, it doesn't matter. If they want to come and worship in the temple, that's what it's there for. That's what he makes clear. But but Jesus says, you've done something to this place. And he quotes Jeremiah 7, chapter 11. Uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 11. I just didn't want to say Jeremiah 7, 11. That sounds like a gas station. But Jeremiah 7, 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. This is not what the temple, what Jesus is seeing that day is not what the temple was intended to be, but it was what the temple had become. It had been something, it had become something worse, something used for selfish gain. A twisted supermarket, a twisted bank, a twisted convenience store, not a house of worship. It had become a place of business, not a house of prayer. We read in verses 18 and 19, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Why does it matter that he mentions the chief priests and the scribes? Because back in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said, these are the specific people who are going to look to kill me. And here we see that fulfilled. The exact people Jesus called out are now plotting to destroy him. Now when, when Mark uses the word destroy, I think of late 90s Saturday morning cartoons. Because Spider-Man, you couldn't say, I want to kill Spider-Man on those cartoons. If you watch the Batman animated series, you, they couldn't say, I want to kill Batman. They had to say, I want to destroy him. Because that's what the censors would let them get away with. And so sometimes we read this, and we, we in our minds, at least my, gener my generation, would read this and say, oh, well, they just, they just want to kill Jesus. They, he's just cleaning it up. No. The actual Greek word here, and I'm not going to try and pronounce it. You're welcome. It doesn't mean just kill him. They want to ruin every single thing about him. Their hatred of him is so great. The, the word means they want to make sure the person is so devastated beyond repair. Not just his body, his reputation, his teaching, Everything about him must be overturned. That's what they've decided. The word actually is used to, to, discuss, to, to describe the torment of hell or the aftermath of a fierce storm, all the devastation of a tornado. Have you ever seen the aftermath of a tornado? There's nothing but broken trees and upside-down trailers if you're from southern Illinois. The chief priests and the scribes, they want him dead because they fear him. Not because he's wrong. Not because he's done something bad. Because they're afraid. Why are they afraid? Because the people are listening to him. What he was teaching was true. They didn't like it. 
What he was preaching was opening and changing minds. They didn't want that. In Luke 19, 48, it says they couldn't do anything because the people were hanging on every word. You know why they feared Jesus? Because the people were coming around. The people were waking up. The people were beginning to have the truth take root in their hearts. And pretty soon they may not need old Caiaphas. They may not really, really need Annas in the way they've needed him recently. They may not need the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their petty squabbles because they're going to have the truth given to them by Christ. It's very similar in a way to the Reformation. The Catholic Church had the Bible in Latin. And at the time, the 1500s, about 80 to 90% of the priests couldn't read or understand Latin. So John Huss and Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and uh, John Wycliffe, John Knox, these guys, they come and they take the Bible from the Greek and the Hebrew and they begin to get it in the language of the common folks so they could read it, so they could understand it, and a light begins to shine. People begin to understand Scripture, possibly for the first time in a thousand years or more. The common folk read the Bible and the people realize, just like the, the good example, the word repentance. Do you know that's not, that's, that word didn't exist until William Tyndale. When he took the Greek, the Catholic Bible took it in Latin to mean penitence, to pay penitence. Well, that's great if you're trying to get rich off people. But if a person's heart changes, if a person's mind and actions truly change because of their belief, there's no profit in that. But that's what, that's what the Bible said. No wonder they didn't like it. No wonder all those men I mentioned were martyred. Because they were bringing light to the people. And what happens to Jesus? They're going to kill him. You guys have heard me say, I know on Wednesday night, we've definitely talked about a good pastor wants you to know the word, wants you to be dependent on Jesus, not on him. That does not mean if you have a question about the Bible, you can't come and ask me. You will find very quickly, if you have a question about theology, if you have a question about Scripture, I love to sit down and explain and discuss and talk about it. I absolutely do. But ultimately, I want you to understand and know the Word of God so that you can read it and have it in your home and have it in your heart and have it in your mind. It's only hucksters and charlatans who will say, you have to buy my book in order to unlock your spiritual potential. You have to watch my YouTube channel in order for you to know how to use your spiritual gift. That's not how the spiritual gifts work. They're a free gift of God. When people read their Bible for themselves... When they begin to pray for themselves, we might see actual reform. We might see actual revival. And we might see actual true growth in the church. The problem is we so quickly become dependent on people and not learn to study Scripture for ourselves. We read on in verse 20 and 21, back to the, the second piece of bread in the story sandwich. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, the tree has withered to its roots. This is a prophetic miracle. This is Jesus making very clear to the disciples what's going to happen to the temple. Later in, in chapter 13, I mentioned this, they come out of the temple, and as he leaves, one of his disciples says to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be torn down. That's what's going to happen to the temple. It's what happened to the fig tree. Jesus' intention was not to cleanse the temple, but to expose the hearts of the religious elite, to show who were the true robbers in that den, to expose their fruitlessness. He cleans the court of the Gentiles, yes, but it's not to make a second-tier place of worship for the Gentiles. It's to invite the Gentile in because they've been shoved out by the Jewish leaders. 
The religious leaders were as dead as that tree. And the withering of the tree only reveals what's been going on in their hearts and inside that temple. The tree looked good for food. It looked like it was producing fruit, but it was only good for firewood. And Jesus refers to this later in in John 15. He talks about uh, those who bear fruit. I'm the vine, my father's the vine dresser. But this is what he says about those who don't bear fruit. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. That's what they're good for at that point. They've not been producing fruit. And the connection becomes very simple. Israel has become this tree. The religious leaders should be bearing fruit, but they're not. They don't. And as goes the tree, so will go the temple. Jesus is giving them an object lesson. He is illustrating this truth to these 12 men. But then he begins to turn it to the topic of prayer. Jesus answered them. Now, Peter is the one who said it, but he's, Peter is speaking for all the disciples. And Jesus answers them and he says, Have faith in God. He doesn't say, you're right, Peter. Look how awesome I am at destroying that tree. He says, have faith in God. We have to have faith. You want prayer that bears fruit? You have to have faith. Hebrews 11, 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, your prayer is mumbling to the ceiling. Without faith, your prayer that you you don't speak out loud is just a thought. It does nothing. But with faith, your prayer grows legs and makes its way to the Father's throne. What is faith? Many of you have heard me quote this piece in pieces over the years, but this is the first time I think I've read this entire thing. It's actually, full disclosure, this is from a Christian rap song. Please don't throw anything at me, okay? Those of you who love country. But this is is from the song, and this is a great way to describe faith. He says, what is authentic faith? The cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with a kind of spirituality attached to it, a holy hoping for the best. Is this how you think of faith? Authentic faith is the confident assurance in events not yet seen. Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It is not a crossing of the fingers and hoping for the best. It is not a leap into apparent nothingness. It's a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Thought upon what? God and his promises. If you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, then how you live your life in the present will be radically different than if you did not possess that certainty. This is what faith is, my friends, positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God, it is believing God, taking God at his word, living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost, because you know down deep in your bones that God will always do what he says, that is, that his speaking is his doing. It is an abiding assurance in God and his promises that animates you to persevere in your obedience to him. Do you wish, church, do you wish to be a more consistently obedient, steadily persevering Christian? Um, A stronger Christian. Hopefully you're saying yes. Right? A more courageous, outspoken Christian than you need to strengthen your faith. Your faith is instinctively strengthened in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. You expand your understanding of the object of your faith and faith itself will obediently follow. The object of your faith, if indeed you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ and all his promises. Is your faith weak? It is owing to the fact that you don't know the object of your faith well enough. But when Jesus Christ becomes progressively bigger, or better yet, your understanding of who he is progressively conforms to reality, your faith will become increasingly stronger. But how does that happen? By immersing yourself in the faith-arousing word of God, read of Jesus Christ. 
Church, that's beautiful. That's what faith is. Paul says, our righteousness depends on faith. He says that in Philippians 3. If we want prayer that bears fruit, we must submit to Christ as he is. Period. We read on in verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. This verse has been hijacked. This verse has been twisted. This verse has been contorted. And other words I'm not going to use because we have younger kids in here, but it has been utterly abused. The pl- you, you've all heard me say, when you see the plain sense of a verse, I just said this last week, when you see the plain sense of the verse, look no further. But what do you do when a verse like this comes along and it seems to contradict everything Jesus has said thus far? You've got to look deeper. You've got to look a little harder at things. Because Jesus doesn't con- contradict himself. Amen? So what's he getting at? What's he saying here? A church... I, you'll, you, many of you know my history, but I was a youth pastor in a church where someone would take this passage and they would come in and they'd say, Pastor, I've been praying for healing and I've not got my healing and I, I am not making this up. The man looked across the desk and said, it's because you still lack faith. We had two women in the church where I was a youth pastor in a span of about three, four months, both claim their healings and throw away all their medication for their mental health And both try to kill themselves. But if they just had faith, they could speak to that depression, right? No! That's an abuse of the scripture. That's not what he's saying. Well, if you don't have answered prayer, it's because you don't have faith. The only thing keeping you sick is your own faith and lack of it. No, I'm telling you, that is a damnable heresy. That is a lie from the pits of hell. Well, Pastor, how can you say that? Matthew's version says pretty much the same thing. I say to you, if you have faith and don't doubt, you'll not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say it to the mountains, be taken up, thrown to the sea, it'll happen. If Jesus is saying this literally, this Jesus is a liar. He is a hypocrite himself. This is the type of miracle on the scale the Pharisees begged him for. And he said, no. You're not going to get that kind of miracle. By the way, we never see the apostles do this. Everything else he told the apostles they could do in faith, they've done it. They pick up snakes. They, they probably drank poison. It's not recorded because they didn't even know they were drinking it. Jesus is speaking figuratively here. He's speaking hyperbolically here of the immense power of a holy, righteous, sovereign God as it is unleashed in the life of a believer who has faith. 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So what's the kicker there? According to his will. You don't know his will if you're not in his word. You can't pray in his will if you're not in his word. When Jesus is saying this, by the way, he's either still standing on the Mount of Olives or he's pointing over to Mount Zion where Jerusalem is. We established last week, Mount of Olives plays a part in the end of times. So you're not going to be able to walk over to Israel and shout at this mountain and expect it to fall into the sea. That's not in the will of God. Mount Zion, also, Jerusalem has a huge part to, read Revelation, has a huge part to play in the end times. You're not going to get that to fall into the ocean or or the Mediterranean Sea. It's not going to happen. It's not the will of God. So what's he saying? He's saying we don't have that power. We are not God. Faith is not just belief, but trusting. And if you believe God, but you don't trust in your prayer, in your faith, trusting his will above your own, you don't really have faith. You don't have biblical faith. A mountain, by the way, when the prophetic literature, like Zechariah 4, a mountain would represent any great difficulty that might come your way. 
And what Jesus is saying here very clearly, and when we study and when we dig into it, is that great difficulties can be removed for a person of faith. But it's Jesus' brother, James, who makes it very clear that a person of faith can also withstand those great mountains of difficulty. There's an old song, Lord, there's a mountain in the way, a lock on the door, so move or move me. That's kind of what, what Jesus is saying. You can move the mountain or you can move me. James says a little bit further, he says, you can withstand the mountain. In James 1, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. He's talking about gaining wisdom. Some of you say, Lord, I want wisdom, and then you get upset because he sends trials. He puts a mountain in your way. And that's how he's teaching you wisdom. I noticed the amens are starting to taper off this morning. That's okay. The point is we pray without doubt. We pray trusting him. Verse 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Whatever you ask. That's the key. Whatever you're asking. Faith does not demand. Faith does not declare. Faith does not command or activate. Biblical faith is humble faith, and it asks. If we know it's God's will, then our belief should be, our trust should be, our faith should assume the results. But that doesn't mean when you pray for a blind man, you kick the stick out of his hand and tell him, now go find your seat. Doesn't mean you stop taking your depression meds. It doesn't mean, I, I hope my wife is watching this online, it doesn't mean you continue to drive the car with the needle on E. But I've got faith I'll get to Casey's or Gordy's in time. Please don't do that. That's hard on your, your fuel pump. There are no limits to a believer's prayer that aligns with God's will and God's purpose. In Matthew 17, 20, Jesus said, we just need a mustard size, size uh, mustard seed size of faith. Our faith and prayer are not to be inconsistent with God's word or God's will. When we pray, we should ask ourselves, is this selfish of me? Is this for me or is this for him? Is this vengeance that I'm asking God for? Is this for my glory or for his glory? Is this for others to grow in his kingdom or is it to grow my own kingdom? It's funny, I mentioned James. James goes on at the end of his epistle and he says, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. That you may be healed, not that you will be healed. It's very clear about that. In order for our prayer to be fruitful, it must be humble and in line with his will. Verses 25 and 26. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who's in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you don't forgive, neither will your Father who's in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, many people leave out verse 26. It kind of lines up with what Jesus says in, in Matthew uh, 6, I believe, Matthew 5, uh, with the Lord's Prayer. So we won't necessarily focus on that. It's kind of repetitive anyway when you look at verse 25. But the point Jesus is making is lack of forgiveness is an obstacle to effective prayer. It's funny that many people will, will quote verse 23 and verse 24, but they've still got bitterness themselves. Why isn't God answering my prayer? Well, you may have all the faith in the world, but do you have unforgiveness in your heart too? It's interesting, 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter tells these wives how to be wives of unbelieving husbands, and he concludes by talking to the husbands. He says, but husbands, you live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. Why are your prayers being hindered? Are you living with your husband in an understanding way? Are you loving him? Are you respecting him? Are you loving your wife? Are you living with her in an understanding way? If not, well, your prayers are being hindered. He's very clear about that. 
Matthew 6, 15, like I said, this kind of is the repetition part. If you don't forgive others, God will not forgive you. God does forgive when you come to him initially, but if you refuse, you harden your heart. And 1 John says, 1 John says, if you don't love like God loved you, you're not in God. You're not in him. You don't have the love of God abiding in your heart. And you may be watching online, you might be here and you might say, well, pastor, you don't know how much a person has hurt me. It's hard for me to forgive. You're just a preacher. You're just a pastor. Everybody's always nice to you. Dear diary, <laughs> guess what I heard today? We must forgive if our prayer is to be fruitful. God forgave us offering his only son. How can we not forgive others? So as we wrap up today, fruitful prayers, the keys are very simple. Don't be a hypocrite. Have faith, pray without doubting. Accept God's will and power over our own will and power. Pray with forgiveness in your heart for others. In order to sum it all up, I would say, just submit to Jesus as he truly is. Jesus forgave. I would say Jesus had pretty productive powers, uh, pretty productive prayers, powerful prayers. Wouldn't you? Yeah, he also had forgiveness. In Luke 23, 34, on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus forgave the hands that drove the nails. If we follow him faithfully, our prayer will, build, will bear fruit as we submit to him as he is. Now, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. I keep saying, submit to him as he truly is. Why do I say that? Because a lot of people think they know Jesus. They have this idea of who he is, but it's not based on scripture. Maybe it's based on a cartoon they saw when they were younger or a TV show that's currently airing that's no replacement for your Bible. Maybe it's something they heard in Sunday school years ago. And that, that's just shaped how they view Jesus, but it's not been continually searching and seeking to understand him from the scriptures. Let me tell you something this morning, church. If your version of Jesus doesn't flip tables, you got the wrong Jesus. If your version of Jesus only flips tables, you've got the wrong Jesus. Jesus came and died to save sinners. Jesus came in love, but Jesus also came with authority and justice, and he's coming back. And the question we should ask is, will he find his church praying in faith? Now, if you read this text after today and you go home and you find yourself shouting at a hillside, you have missed the point. But if you go home this afternoon or you, you spend some time here as we close this morning and you find yourself praying, Lord, not my will, but yours, you've got it. And it'll make a world of difference. We're going to close in worship this morning. And if you'd like prayer or you'd like to pray, you're more than welcome to join us at the front. Pray where you are. Pray with a friend. Go ahead.